Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Hello, everybody, and it's your raucous cowboy bruiser, Holden McNeely. And it's me, your tough but fair spaceman who represents the inevitable march of progress and your inevitable obsolescence. And it's me, Jesse. Hey, Jake. It's Yee-haw! me. <laughs> I'm loud and I'm I'm off-putting, but also I'm literally the only female character with agency in this whole dang franchise. That's right. We're talking today about Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3 because I just felt like it was unfair to only cover the first movie. Yes, we have so much to talk about in the first movie with the beginnings of Pixar, everything, but this actually does tell some more of the story of Pixar here mm-hmm. because really Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3 are such landmark kind of moments in the evolution of Pixar, I feel like. As I was realizing just now, like, now with um, with with uh, Pixar films, I definitely, like, expect to weep my eyes out now. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't always so with Pixar. That was, th- There was always an emotional core to Pixar films, but it wasn't until really up, I feel like, that, that really got the floodgates going um, a little bit, at least right up top there, and then Inside Out. And and I think Toy Story 3 was one of those movies that kind of marked the change for Pixar. Oh, we now know how to make adults cry, so we're going to do that like every movie. We, we can talk about it once we get to Toy Story 3, but I just feel like, and then Toy Story 2 marks, I feel like, a maturity in their storytelling, a maturity in their character development, um, and things of that nature. Well, it's one of the kind of trademark things that makes uh, Pixar completely kind of on its own from Disney is when you think about a Disney movie, it's always like a princess who's like in a tower or under the sea or, you know, uh, just kind of stuck in a place where she's low and she yearns for something more. Every, you know, every Disney, even Aladdin. Yes. There's so much more to me. Okay. So it's always this, uh, you know, uh, uh, there must be more than this provincial life. Yes. You know, it's all very like big want. I'm sick of hitting this bell. I'm a hunchback (laughs) and everyone can go to hell. I want to go to the city. I want to go to the desert. I want to go and see a girl's boobies. Literally a better song. (laughs) Except that one fucked up one where the gay priest is like, I want stuff. Boy, yo, 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 yo. I'm horny, swight horny, my dick is doing stuff. I think those are the lyrics. Anyway. I think so. Um, 
<laughs> and even he wants more. Yes. <laughs> yeah, more we don't want to talk about what he wants, though. Uh, the subject of his desire. But Pixar movies are all about a fear of change. It's actually, it's less about trying to grab something higher, and it's about an innate fear of something being taken away, which is just as relatable, if not more so. Uh, uh, you know, even from Toy Story 1, uh, it's Woody who's in a perfect status quo and Buzz comes in and kind of like wrecks that. And then by the time we get to Toy Story 2 and 3, it's this weird ominous understanding that all good things cannot last. And mm. uh, that follows from Up, uh, you know, it goes into even Cars, even fucking Kachow Lightning McQueen it has to learn to be humble and accept the, the that things can change and that, you know, you're not defined uh, solely as as uh, your dream self, you have to be humble sometimes. Of course, Kendrick Lamar did the soundtrack for that. So. <laughs> <laughs> His cover of Life is a Highway classic. Um, so it's it's that emotional resonance that Pixar movies kind of kind of uh, hit on. It's a they're masterful storytellers, and b they're hitting a power chord that like kids movies didn't really hit a lot. Yes, and I think we were always at this point looking towards that movie that can draw both children and adults into the theater in a real big way. Nobody likes change. Nobody likes getting old. No one likes losing yes. status. No one likes the unknown. Yes. Oh, Inside Out, dude. You have no idea the emotional oh. roller coaster ride I went on watching that movie. I think I watched it on my birthday, and I cried several times. I had to pause it multiple times. I was falling apart, and it was all about that. It was all about that turnover into becoming an adult, how hard that time was in my life, how challenging that was. Mm-hmm. And another part of my life that that gets captured so well. Did you have to go through so a big well. move as a kid too? Uh, no, I didn't have to go through oh. a big move. But I, well, I just had to switch schools very jarringly. My teacher was so bad in the public school I was at in fifth grade that my parents were going to switch me over to schools after fifth grade into middle school to make it a cleaner transition. But the teacher was so horrible that they just pulled me mid year. <laughs> wow! And I really, it oh, was really rough. jarring. And I, I just halfway through fifth grade, I was in a private school. Uh, and you know, and, and everybody was different, and everybody was like way smarter and way more like. Meanwhile, you had a single suspender with a frog yeah, sticking out of your I pocket. Was, I really felt like that kind of bumpkin new kid for a little bit there, where I was like, you know, I mean, just my curriculum was so idiotic in the public school that oh, I was wow. at, and it was so much more refined, and everyone was so much more like put together, and I was at odds with my teacher. She reminded me actually of the teacher in uh, Calvin and Hobbes, that like old lady. Oh, she, you know, I can't Ms., remember her name, Miss Wormwood. Yeah. I believe. Yeah, it reminded me of Miss Wormwood a little bit. She was kind of older and kind of, you know, and I just feel like I was like a bit of a Calvin just kind of coming in there. But anyways, um, everybody thinks they're Calvin, right? But we're not talking about Calvin and Hobbes. That's a different episode, Jake. We're talking about- underperforming ap- episode that deserves your- <laughs> Go back and listen to it again. I, my heart aches for the, about that episode. Uh, so anyways, uh, this is around- not too long after the first Toy Story came out. In fact, it was about a month after the original film's opening in 1995. Uh, at there, uh, John Lasseter has already... There was already talk about another Toy Story episode. One day at the airport, John Lasseter sees a boy's excitement to show his father his Woody doll that he just got, and this inspires him to move forward with the sequel. Um, at least that's what he said. He said he saw some... He just didn't... He wanted to keep the characters moving forward, that, that he wanted to give the children some more... Um, Woody. <laughs> I'm sorry, could you repeat what that said? I wanted to give the children some more Woody. Uh. <laughs> Excellent. Very well done. Moving on to my next page of notes. Uh, 
Well, it wasn't that simple. No, not at all. Uh, not not at all. And and there's been some changing of the guard a, a little bit around this time as well. If you remember our characters from the first episode, you've got Katzenberg, who did his best to destroy Toy Story <laughs> accidentally by giving them a ton of script suggestions. He is now replaced by a man named Joe Roth as uh, chairman of Walt Disney Studios. Um, and... Uh, you have Ed Catmull, Ralph Guggenheim, and John Lasseter from Pixar meeting with Joe Roth to pitch a sequel. Now, Roth, if you remember this time in Disney, and I so remember <laughs> this time in Disney, they really cheapened all of their IPs by doing this. They made a bunch of direct-to-video sequels, and I felt like that really kind of took these these golden titles that they had and really made them goofified them by having some like Jafar's revenge. Aladdin, the Prince of Thieves, uh uh, King of Thieves. Uh, Uh There was even like a hunchback too, where like he gets a cool blonde girlfriend who's like, fuck, I love your lumpy body. (laughs) Yeah, it was just. I'm remembering that incorrectly, but Lion King three with like the fucking cousin scars. Like it's like Joe Roth was like a fucking the used car salesman of Disney, Walt Disney studios. He was just like hawking these, uh, Franchises into I mean, these direct-to-video sequels. Cheap animation studio, I think, based out of Australia, Disney Tune, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. Possibly, uh, you might know know that better than me. But uh, uh, yeah, they were cranking them out. So a direct-to-video Toy Story sequel just made perfect sense. And according to the terms of the uh, picture, the distribution deal, Disney owned those characters anyway. And to be fair, too, Pixar had uh, had their folk, their main focus in other areas at the time. You've got a lot of the big deal dudes there. The, the, the brain big, trust. The big story people. They were working on other things. You've got Andrew Stanton working on A Bug's Life and Peter Doctor working on Monsters, Inc. You know, it's kind of funny reading back on this, like how big of a deal A Bug's Life was to Pixar during this time. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like A Bug's Life is one of the lesser remembered uh films of of the Pixar, you know, legacy and and definitely Toy Story 2 would end up becoming I think a much bigger deal than than uh than a Bug's Life. I actually want to rewatch a Bug's Life because yeah. um Toy Story 2 is littered with like Bug's Life references. Yes, it totally is. Like I really think that they thought that Bug's Life was really going to be one of their bigger, huger things. Um and I don't even did it even get a sequel? I don't even think it did, right? I don't think so. No. I feel like you got Cars with Cars 2, you've got um, even Monsters, Monsters Inc. Yeah, right. You've got yeah, pretty much everything got a sequel. But Nobody a wants flick. to get flicked a second time. Well, also there was so many bug movies at that time. I think mm. that's what really fucked it all up. It was like Ants, A Bug's Life. There well, was something we should, else. Wait, I think if I'm not mistaken, was I, okay. I'm misremembering this, but Ants was literally made out of spite to fuck over Pixar, just to prove that they could. Like it was literally greenlit after A Bug's Life was announced and they pushed it through to get it released before A Bug's Life. Hmm. I think that was DreamWorks or was that Sony? I think that was like Katzenberg's Revenge. DreamWorks. (laughs) No, literally. uh, DreamWorks especially. SKG. Spielberg, Katzenberg and Third Guy. Katzenberg's Revenge which I did have on Sega Genesis. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) So, Are you a bad enough Jewish media executive <laughs> to save Goop Planet? Uh, P.S. Hollywood Executive Simulator would be a fantastic Steam game, now that I think about it. It has to exist. I don't I doubt it. I think Peter Molyneux made, like, the movies. That was, like, a weird one. Yeah. I there. Uh, Shout-outs to my buddy Gil at, uh, f- uh, what is it called, Ferret Games, I believe. He has a tabletop game called The Network. That is essentially that putting together like a a, a, pro, a series of programming for like a television. Uh, we gotta channel. have a live event, like a live game night, and just like 
get super wasted with yeah. strangers and pray they don't stab us, and then we play a bunch of board games. Yeah, and I should have Gil come out. He's a ama- he makes his own games professionally. It's incredible. He like travels all over the place. Goes anyways. Uh, that's please that's don't stab us. <laughs> exactly. My flesh is so soft. I think it's flying ferret. Games. It would go in like air. <laughs> so anyways, they're working on a story, and Lasseter bases this new story, this new premise on himself as an avid toy collector. I have this quote from him. The story of Toy Story 2 is based a lot on my own experience. I'm a big toy collector, and a lot of them are like antiques or one-of-a-kind toys or prototypes the toy makers have given me. Well, I have five sons, and when they were little, and they love to come to Daddy's work and come into uh, into Daddy's office, and they just want to touch and play with everything, and I'm sitting there saying, oh no, that's a, you can't play with that one. Oh no, uh, play with this one. Oh no. And I found myself just sitting there looking at myself and laughing because toys are manufactured put on this earth to be played with by a child that is the core essence of Toy Story and the Lego movie and so I started wondering what was it like from a toy's point of view to be collected so that's kind of where we get to because of course if you haven't seen Toy Story 2 um, I'm, I'm guessing most people listening to this have it's essentially about Woody getting um, essentially kidnapped by a owl, uh, owl a toy collector um, um, he, uh, he looks uh, 100% like Jake he uh, <laughs> shut up <laughs> shut I'm up. just kidding he doesn't look like it he looks a lot like <laughs> Jesus. I'm just gonna one day I'm just gonna wake up and I'm going to be Wayne Knight and it's gonna be <laughs> horrifying. And he he yeah exactly it's totally Newman from uh, Seinfeld he does a fantastic job. He improvised a lot of those lines like just yeah. that scuzzy energy that Al brought. That's all Newman baby. He's awesome. I love Wayne Knight. He's he I love him in like everything I see him yeah. in. He's so great. <laughs> I loved, like, the whole Newman thing. On We need to do an episode on Seinfeld. Shit, that's a good idea. Uh, I would love to do an episode on that show. I, I, I've, I saw every episode. It was such a big deal. Like, I'd watch it with my dad. Anyways, we're not talking about that. We're talking about Toy Story to Doso. Uh, and so anyways, uh, he, he's he's trying to think about, you know, um, this this toy collector. He wants to sell the col- the complete collection of Woody dolls because Woody comes with a complete set, which is such a smart idea. You've got um, Jesse, the uh, the cowgirl. You've got, uh, what's his what's the name of uh, Kelsey Stinky, Grammer's? Stinky, Stinky Pete the Prospector. Stinky Pete the Prospector. I love how embarrassed <laughs> Kelsey Grammer's character, Stinky Pete in the boxes <laughs> at like the way he was depicted on the TV show because he was like, no, I'm an idiot. He sits on the fuse and burns his bum. Yeah. <laughs> Kelsey Grammer's like, such a great pick for uh, the voice of that mm-hmm. character. Even though you always, spoiler alert, but you always know if Kelsey Grammer is cast in the role, he's definitely secretly evil. And you will find <laughs> that out later. Sideshow Bob, this guy, like Frazier when he does his Frazier, dark turn. <laughs> Frazier and his dark turn when he kills the dog. And everyone's like, oh my God, what are you doing? It was like, it was me licking your hand the whole time. <laughs> Anywho. We come come back full circle here. Uh, this is all about him trying to sell this complete set to a museum in Japan, and uh, Woody kind of caught between wanting to help his fellow toys out and kind of really loving his complete set and wanting to stay with them and getting convinced that it maybe it should go there because then at least he'll be kept in perpetuity, whereas um, he will one day be left behind by uh, his his the child Andy Andy that plays with him, and um, that is kind of. Pl- 
planting the seed that really gets even further developed in Toy Story 3. This tragic, tragic story about when the moment a child moves on from toys. Now, sad that would be for toys under the logic of Toy Story yeah. in which they desperately want, uh, you know, their purpose in life is to be played with by a child. And that's the genius of Toy Story is that anxiety is the anxiety of a parent when the kid moves out. The anxiety of an old person uh, when they're, you know, put in an old folks home. The anxiety of just every living thing knowing that death awaits. Like, you know, the, the impermanence of existence is kind of this background anxiety that every single living creature on earth has and having it uh, expressed through the voice of these like cute cartoon characters is just such a brilliant kind of backdoor way of processing those emotions um they they uh they also um some ideas were brought in uh or, or came from ash brannon this was a young upstart in pixar that uh john laster brought in to co-direct with him and he suggested the yard sale in which the collector finds woody uh he he suggests different things woody being part of a collection is actually in the tin toy christmas draft tin toy christmas was the made for tv movie that they pitched oh, to yeah. disney in the very very beginning apparently Woody was a part of a complete set in that treatment so there there also have this is just just speaks towards at this point now making Toy Story 2 and onward into Toy Story 3 they have all these drafts to pull different elements from that never got used and they're starting to kind of pull those out of these old early concept drafts like oh and another one was the squeaky the penguin who lost well that's 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 a whole different thing actually okay uh wheezy yeah uh but uh love that character so much toy story 2 a lot of things uh uh the opening sequence with buzz lightyear uh where it's like kind of taken at face value that this is a buzz lightyear original adventure uh, they originally wanted a whole 2D animated sequence in the first movie. Huh. Um, funny enough, the uh, set piece where like Buzz Lightyear is flying around that alien planet, that's actually Ant Island from A Bug's Life with the water taken out of the moat. That like canyon huh. is the same model. Um, Interesting. Also, Woody's nightmare sequence where like Andy, <laughs> it's very creepy when Andy's like, oh, you're broken. I don't want to play with you anymore. Yeah. Where the Ace of Spades cards go flying. Yeah. That was a sequence they desperately wanted in and, Toy Story and 1. original Toy Story, and they, they reused it for this. Yes, absolutely. That was such a cool, rewatching it again, like that was such a trippy, crazy sequence that yeah. felt so different for, for Toy in Story. In fortune telling, the Ace of Spades is the death card. Ah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, according to uh, the audio commentary on Toy Story 2, uh, Lasseter demanded... That they had a more well-rounded uh, female character besides the fragile porcelain doll Bo Peep. Yeah, well, apparently that was uh, pressure from his wife. Yeah, for that, that to, to create a character, so he created Jesse to make that stronger. character. In addition to that, uh, Joan Cusack, who played uh, the voice of Jesse, I l- continually demanded that Jesse be more proactive in the story. Uh, the I love f- yeah. her. Can we just say that? Like, I love her in general and everything she does, but like. I love her in this movie. She's mm. so endearing. Jessie is so lovable because of the voice work of Joan Cusack. And it makes so much sense that she even pushed even harder for that part to be stronger. Like, everything, like, it is, Jessie is what makes Toy Story 2 for me, at least. Like, I, I love, I love, love, love her in this movie. I tried to find more interview stuff with her talking about Toy Story 2. I couldn't really find a lot personally uh, because I just wanted to like do a whole episode on Joan Cusack 
voicing Jesse. Well, one of the Jesse. strongest the strongest beats in the movie is the uh, Sarah McLachlan, yes. uh, Randy Newman yes. duo song "When Somebody Loved Me." Ugh, um, just, that that is that is really the tearjerker moment of Toy Story Two, if it has one. You know, it, to, again, I feel like by this time they were learning how to make like really great emotional. Uh, or do emotional storytelling, but but they they hadn't quite gotten to the point where they're just ripping your guts out of you <laughs> like Coco. <laughs> um, and that's you know what I think we have to get into. Um, so the movie started as this weird back and forth like uh, uh, sequel slash TV special that was kind of pushing hands between Disney and Toy Story. Disney kept being like, well, if you don't do it, we'll just make it ourselves. And the Pixar team is like, okay, we'll do it. But that counts as one of the movies we're committed to, right? And uh, Disney would keep Said shutting no, that down. No, yeah, they could. They, they had to be all new IPs, I do believe. So it's this made-for-TV sequel that is being worked on not by the main team. The, the, the rest of Pixar, a team of 300, were all working on A Bug's Life at the time. Now it's Steve Jobs, again, Steve Jobs, this figure that's just sort of around mm. making shot calls just making things happen just 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 ch- altering history in all his weird ways that he did because he got that creepy amulet that allowed <laughs> him to do that he ends up making the call to take Pixar's interactive products group a team of 95 who were working on CD-ROM Toy Story titles they worked on two called Disney's animated storybook Toy Story and the Toy Story Activity Center and they made he made that team the initial team working on the sequel they were literally working on the other side of the tracks from the Pixar office. There was literal railroad tracks <laughs> separating the main, cool, awesome, big Pixar building and these guys, this, like, motley crew of of animators. Um, and, and, and so they get to work. Uh, Karen Jackson, one, the co-producer, she said, we were just a small film and we were off playing in our sandbox. They were just kind of given their carte blanche to do what they would do. Uh, kind of over off to the side again because they think this is direct-to-video just kind of a bullshit sequel what was nice though was there was already new software in place for this production that allowed them to upgrade models and do more complex animations one of the best examples of this is the dust that you see uh, pop up poof up when uh, Woody's uh, plopped down on the shelf on that top shelf when he's put off to the side after he injures his arm and uh, that was actually over 2 million dust particles that they pretty much just did a copy paste on like one (laughs) dust particle and created this like insane effect they're starting to really get to play with things you know obviously the dream sequence that ends up coming out uh, later like they're just really getting to do more interesting animations do more interesting stuff but at the same time people are just getting moved back and forth this is like a real ragtag operation Uh, John Lasseter uh, they're unhappy with the way that the production's going so here's 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 okay so Disney uh, sees the footage that Pixar is making and they're like, oh no, this is a full movie. We got to make this a full movie. And so they start shuffling resources around. It's still a very slapdash, uh, homunculus of a production. And about a year into production, disaster strikes. Uh, while working on the film, uh, animators are looking through a folder and they hit refresh and they see a bunch of files disappear. Oh uh, yes, I love this this tale. They start looking through the root folders and more files are disappearing. People are, you know, because the way these big uh, movies work is, you know, individual animators are working at their workstations, but it's all getting saved and, you know, sent 
to a central server. I love this quote here from uh, the technical director, Oren Jacob, who was one of the first to notice it. Uh, he said, Larry Cutler was in that directory and happened to be talking about installing a fix to Woody or Woody's hat. He looked at the directory. The f- a fix is how two objects are kind of linked to one another. He, so, like, uh, you know, when you actually, because uh, that's actually very complicated to do. Huh, yeah, because uh, computers yes. don't, uh, like, they understand space, but they don't understand the actual ways that objects bump up against uh, each other. For reference, just look at any video game cutscene that has two people kissing or holding hands. <laughs> yeah. It is the most fucking awkward nonsense, and they still have not gotten One of the right. greatest uh, achievements, one of the highest, like, shows of uh, good computer animation Sonic is... Sonic kissing the real-life woman? No, that, I mean, that's just a moment that changed a generation. <laughs> but the way that, like, you believe that solid objects are interacting, because that's all done in animation. The computer mm. just really uh, can't do that. Yeah. Hey, everybody, Holden here. The truth is, most of us are brushing our teeth wrong not for long enough and forget to change our brush on time. That's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. So what makes Quip so different? For starters, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes, while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist's recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. I used mine last night and it works so well. My fiance is elated that I'm finally brushing for the correct amount of time. Next, Quip's subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. No charger or wires means Quip is compact and light to make brushing twice daily easy at home and on the go. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth. All copy aside, the travel cover is really cool. It's hard to explain here, but trust me, it's a very smart design and I'm way more psyched about it than I ever should be. And finally, everyone loves Quip. They were on Oprah's O-List, named one of Time's best inventions, and is the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Plus, they're backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists, and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash wizard right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash wizard spelled g-e-t-q-u-i-p dot com slash wizard uh, so so he said he looked at the directory and it had like 40 files he looked again and it had four files then we saw sequences start to vanish as well and we were like oh my god i grabbed the phone unplug the machine <laughs> <laughs> i always at one point in my life out of desperation i want to have to pick up a phone and scream <laughs> unplug the machine <laughs> Uh, what people times. believe happened is someone <laughs> used a basic uh, Linux, I think it's a Linux or a Unix command, that's uh, bin slash rm dash rf asterisk, which is supposed to just delete a folder, Yeah. but it also deletes everything. So this one command was literally eating its way through the entire root system, deleting the entire movie. Now, this is sucks. This is awful. You know, everyone just kind of, like, realized that their workstation stopped responding, and they kind of just, like, oh, I guess computers are down, and just kind of, like, had the day off. And they knew everything would be fine, because they had backups. The only problem is, 
Pixar's backup system was not working properly. And by the way, this by the time they had shut down the file servers, they had lost 90% of the last two years mm-hmm. of work. Two years of animation work. 90% was gone. Yes, they have a backup, but there is a bit of a snafu, isn't there, Jake, in the backup plan that they had. Jake Young. Uh, the <laughs> Jake. Basically, instead of saving new files on these four gigabyte tape drives, because again, this was still like the 90s. This wasn't, uh, we think of these movies now, you know, a video game takes up like 20 gigabytes. But even then, like the quality of textures in a major motion picture was still, uh, you know, in the, it was, the file size is a lot smaller than you think of. Uh, I believe the whole movie, like Toy Story 2, the raw movie, only took up about 10 gigabytes of information, which is insane to think about nowadays. I know. There's like cr- PUBG when I saw updates that, that are like five times as big. When I saw that is so insane to me. Mm-hmm. 10 gigs. And that, that was probably like kind of a lot. They probably had terabyte drives back then, right? Yeah. Yeah. But just only, only a select few, you know? I yeah. mean, space in computing is so crazy. Like the evolution of it and how quickly it evolves. Moore's Law is a hell of a drug. Oh, my goodness. Um. But the, so the backups were borked. The backups were wrongly formatted. So they were actually like deleting old files as new files were coming in. So they think they're fucked at this point. They literally have a meeting uh, with everybody in the room, like slamming their head against tables, just kind of trying to figure out what in the fuck they can do to revive this film, to to save this movie. And, you know, and this is always the interesting side of Pixar. You think about all this incredible storytelling, all the backflipping they had to do with Disney and the contract stuff, everything that goes into just making a good movie happen. Mm -hmm. And then, and then there's this whole IT aspect to to the whole situation that is like another layer of just insanity. And this is when it's probably at its most insane. Well, apparently, there is one technical director named Galen Sussman, a lady who had been working from home because she had just had a baby. Now, uh, first of all, we talked about how Pixar was kind of a boys club. And uh, I'm not going to get into that again. But the fact is, this lady put her foot down and was like, no, fuck you. I'm a mom. You need me. Install in a $100,000 Silicon Graphics workstation in my home. And they fucking did it. They put in an ISDN line, which, if you don't know, was like fancy internet that's now yep. like slower than molasses. And the whole time they were installing it, apparently she was just like, yeah, you like that bitch? <laughs> you like that bitch? Put that fucking Baby computer up. Baby just clamped my- on yeah. her nipple. Anyway. Yeah, watch my baby suck by my fucking breast. All right? And at this emergency <laughs> meeting where everyone is very calmly, you know, one of those we're fucked kind of meetings. God help you. Like, I hope you never have to be in one of those. Uh, she just kindly just raises her hand and is like, I think I have a, mach- a backup in my at my machine back home. Oren Jacob says, she and I just stood up and walked out back to her Volvo, drove across the bridge, got the machine, got some blankets. I hugged it with seatbelts across the back seat, drove like 35 with blinking lights on, hoping to get a police escort <laughs> for this machine. The cops saw us, so it didn't help. Uh, the cops saw us, so it didn't help us. Eight people met us with a plywood sheet out in the parking lot and like a sedan carrying the Pharaoh, walked it into the machine room. <laughs> a palanquin. They literally <laughs> just carrying this precious, because, uh, you know, it's a hundred million dollars worth of time and work but they still had to do an insane amount of work over a long weekend they had to verify about 30 
thousand files working 24 hours a day shifting in and out because if even one because of the way that all these objects the fixes like we talked about if even one object is corrupted it'll like you wouldn't notice until the movie finally rendered and then like all of a sudden Woody's hat is like a garble of pixels and no one knows why <laughs> so it, it, even after they finally got this computer in and kind of saved the day they still had to just do this insane insane overnight uh, work work situation, but they finally did uh, get it together. Too bad it was still garbage, and they had to completely rework the whole movie. Jake, so <laughs> this is maddening. Yeah, I so would already these people have been mind. through hell. This team has been through hell. They have been taking like sixty hours, a hundred hour weeks. They like save this movie, and then during a screening, uh, Ed Catmull, John Lasseter. Uh, all the the quote unquote brain trust of Pixar. John Lester, by the way, who has been away this whole time, he, he he walked away from Toy Story two in order to focus on Bugs Life. So it's like Lester, you know, Daddy's coming back, and we have to appease, and it did not appease. Uh, the, he he found the film to not be up to snuff. Disney agreed it needed to be redone. They need they did a bunch of things. They had to complete the entire film in nine months. They had to completely rework the film and do it in nine months. And literally, they were actually at first trying to push back the release date because they did not think they would have enough time but they said you know that's not how it works we have all this product placement in place I think we also skipped over the part uh, because by this point they have decided that it it was uh, upon seeing early results by the way uh, of the project Disney moves the film from direct to to video up to a theatrical release it was decided by Roth and Peter Schneider if you remember Peter Schneider from the last episode he was the one who was annoyed at Katzenberg's who was trying to stop Mm. Toy Story from happening uh, because they had internal political uh, grief with each other. Uh, After viewing story reels with some early animation back in November of 1997, they decided it was above expectations and that it made more sense to be a bigger release um, uh, for uh, especially for what they were paying, had to pay the Pixar staff because it's a little different. If you make a Aladdin sequel, um, you're not having to pay those animators, you know, this direct-to-video, you're not having to pay those animators nearly as much as you have to pay these crazy, you know, this CGI innovation animation that costs way more money. So anyways, they did change it and announced it. Um, the change was announced in February of 1998. Now let's flash back forward to this situation. Now that it's definitely set to be in theaters, there's all these restaurants, like fast food restaurants and, and different entities like that that toy are... Toy lines. Yeah, toy lines. Is, yeah, you just, everything's in place. You can't just push a movie back at that point. There's too much riding on it. There's too many too many parts in play. Now, uh, Ed Catmull in his uh, book Creativity, Inc., uh, describes this moment, and he says that the core issue was that the emotional truth of the movie was missing. Uh, that the choice that Woody had between going to Japan and uh, staying with Andy wasn't really a choice. That everyone, like, they didn't lay out his dilemma enough. Which is so the character of Wheezy the Penguin up on the shelf was established early to give Woody a vision of what it's like to be a broken toy. Yes. And then they really heightened Jesse's role. She was just kind of there to be like, see, I'm like, you're complete now. Um, and as I said earlier, it, it is that Sarah McLaughlin song that um, Randy Newman wrote, that, uh, uh, that montage that really is the emotional core of the film. Like, without that sequence, you don't have an emotional film. You've got a fun Toy Story movie, but you don't have that, that heart. 
and so strength they even add uh, Buster the dog who was like kind of like they just kind of hand waved him in the original script because it's very hard like they you remember the dog in Toy Story 1 yeah. was this weird meat creature yeah. uh, they had to do all sorts of new tech to get a lifelike dog into the picture yeah they had to uh, one of the animators was ta- I don't have the exact quote but he was just talking about how much of a fuck it was <laughs> to add an entire dog to the movie yeah <laughs> they were like we had to add a whole dog it was a nightmare. Like, that was a big part of the nine-month process was adding that stuff. And also, all these human characters, most of the humans in the film, including the extras in the airport scene at the end, that's a lot, a lot, a lot of work. And also, oh. Lasseter pulls in um, uh, the team from the first film to redevelop the story and, and adds those emotional things. The, um, uh, the restoration sequence that a lot of people point to as one of, like, the film, like, the most... Uh, uh, one of the high points of the movie in terms of like emotion and filmmaking. Uh, they used Jerry, uh, the old man from the Jerry's game uh, short, you know, the chat where he plays chess against himself. Uh-huh. Uh, that wasn't like a fun cameo. They had so little time that they just needed to pull a reasonable old man model from scratch. And they just, they were like, fuck, we'll just use Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. We have the file. We'll just plop him in there. That was a fun scene. I really liked that a lot. Um, so anyways, they just had, insane hours like we're talking about um, 100 hour weeks unreasonable for 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 nine months Mm -hmm. 100 hour weeks for nine months that's the real kicker and you know this led to a large chunk of the staff getting carpal tunnel and repetitive strain injuries Mm -hmm. like a lot of people had like super super bad injuries um due to this uh one animator uh this was probably the worst of it one animator forgot to drop his child off at daycare one morning and in a mental haze forgot the baby in the backseat of his of of the of his car in the parking lot fuck like emergency (laughs) workers had to come out and save the baby uh luckily nothing no harm happened to the baby but this is how bad things are people were talking about how you know the the work situation was like you work 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 somebody just kind of throws you into a shower puts food in front of you I mean these are the kind of things that the animators are dealing with like gives you a cot and just like lays you down in bed because you're just so you're just constantly working so much you need someone to literally like put you into be- a bed to sleep for a little bit so that this you can is, get back this is emblematic of like the whole crunch culture that permeates video games and yep. it's just this kind of like it's very bad yeah it's <laughs> but then but there's no fighting it because the movie comes out and it's yet again after Toy Story 1 was also a giant pain in the ass uh, once again, it's the highest grossing animated movie of all time. It's a giant hit. It does really well. The finished film is first shown at Cal Arts, which I think was kind of sweet in November of 1999 because of so much of the faculty coming, or, or so much of the animators and story people coming from there. Uh, the, this room full of captivated students just loving it. It is initially uh, theatrically re- released with uh, Luxo Jr., Pixar's first short film from 1986. Some found it to be better than the first film. People are now, it's it's in that argument now of sequels that were better than the original. It became 1999's highest grossing animation film, earning $245.9 million in North America and $497.4 million worldwide. It beat both of Pixar's previous releases by a significant margin. It's a huge, huge hit. Um, Randy Newman knocking out of the park again with When She Loved Me, performed by Sarah McLaughlin. Also, Woody's Roundup, 
uh, which he wrote, which is performed by the American Western and comedy group Writers in the Sky. I love all of the throwbacks that happen for uh, Woody's Roundup, which is all very heavily inspired by 1940s and 50s Western and puppet shows for children, Four Feather Falls, Hopalong Cassidy, and of course, Howdy Doody. Well, Howdy Doody for a long time was like the golden uh, standard for collectible 1950s toys. Yes, yes. Um, and it's actually kind of a... Uh, and nowadays, it's actually kind of a, a grim uh, a specter over uh, toy collectors because uh, people spend so much money on these Howdy Doody toys and the uh, speculation climbed so high. And now the prices on these objects are actually plummeting because they only have value to people that love these franchises. And all the Howdy Doody fans started dying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. It, it's yeah. it's It's... It's a great movie. I, I just saw it again the other night. I, mm-hmm. I really love it. And and it's kind of funny because I think I was like slightly distracted when I watched it the first time, mm-hmm. like back when it came out on video. I don't even think I saw it in theaters because I was I was older then and I was cool. I was smoking cigarettes, Jake. Whoa. And I was I know, right? I was like, Fun sticks? It's like really cool back in the day. So anyways I'm sorry, fuck sticks. <laughs> fuck sticks. Impossible to quit sticks. So mm. uh good luck to you out there if you're trying to do that because it sucks. <laughs> But also awesome once you do it. Uh, but anyways, that regardless, I do remember watching it. I enjoyed it, but I don't think I really gave it enough due. It's so good. I, I really loved watching it again. So let's cut now to... 11 years later. 11 years later. Honestly, though, the proper amount of time, that whole audience that grew up with Toy Story, that were kids when Toy Story came out, 10 years later is the perfect amount of time. They're all off to college now. They're all ready to get hit in the face with some emotional ass shit this is now toy story 3 i feel like marks the current age of pixar that we're in right now where it's like just be careful because if you go see it just know you're probably going to be you're going to cry so just know it'll happen bring some tissues you know but they're going pixar will now make you cry and there's nothing you can do about that the um not only that, but like the exact timing of the movie's initial release was the little kids that were, uh, you know, that grew up with the first Toy Story. By the time Toy Story 3 came out, they were ready to go to college. They were ready to leave the house. Totally. So I remember watching it like I think even my parents were with me. And like, you know, we all just kind of looked at each other because it was just too real. It was so perfect. Um, Ugh. Don't cry in this episode, but Holden. before the heartfelt sequel that we all know and love, yeah, it was, hear me out, another giant clusterfuck of bargaining <laughs> between Mammoth Corporation. It's really insane. I did not expect for all of, uh, for the entire story of the Toy Story trilogy to be this nightmare of production. Yeah. Horribly contentious. I mean, it makes sense. You've got Disney. You've got these big entities. Disney also, like, we compared it to, like, Feudal Japan last year. I mean, uh, last episode, because... Because it really, for a long time, it really was its own island that didn't really let anybody in. You know, it was doing its own thing. And now this is really the big first process of letting other Mm -hmm. studios in. So, of course, there's going to be contention. So, according to the terms of Pixar's initial seven-film deal with Disney, all the characters created by Pixar for their films were owned by Disney. And in, in 2004, Disney chairman Michael Eisner put plans in motion to produce Toy Story 3 at a new Disney studio called Circle 7 Animation and it was um, 
as a split between the two companies appeared likely. So D- Michael Eisner, seeing that uh, you know Pixar and uh, Disney uh, were probably going to have a rift soon, he immediately gets gets it going. The the plans for Toy Whether Story three. Whether or not 3, this was like a legit that- thing or just a very like. Kind of like how Marvel treated the Inhumans as a bargaining chip to prove that they don't need the X-Men. Exactly. So um, so Meet the Parents screenwriter Jim Hertzfeld wrote a script. It focused on Andy's mom shipping a malfunctioning buzz to Taiwan where he was built and the other toys um, trying to go um, figure out where he is. While searching on the internet, they find out that many more Buzz Lightyear toys are malfunctioning around the world. And the company has issued a massive recall. Fearing Buzz's destruction, Woody, Rex, Slinky, Mr. Potato Head, Ham, Jesse, and Bullseye all ship themselves to Taiwan and venture out to rescue Buzz. At the same time, Buzz meets other toys from around the world that were once loved but have now been recalled. You can actually find uh, old concept art that they, uh, you know, that the Circle Seven team had made for this movie, and it looks like a real downer. Um, and even though the Pixar team swears up and down, they had no exposure to the Circle Seven treatment um, to the point where they were like, no, we don't want to be we don't want any overlap. We don't even want to know about it. There is some weird similarities. Um, uh, the toys being in like a large conveyor belt uh, towards like inevitable destruction, um, toys being held in these kind of. Uh, sliding cabinet like uh, basket things uh-huh. kind of like in uh, Sunnyside uh, and just this very like just a lot of very sad looking shots of like a comatose buzz being hooked up to like computers and diagnostic machines like a fucking cancer patient yeah Lee Unkrich has this to say about the whole situation there was a lot of friction between the two companies that kept us from making the film we had a five picture deal with Disney at the time and sequels to earlier films didn't count towards the deal as we just spoke about Jake and I I'm not talking as Lee Unkrich right now I'm talking as Holden now we'll talk as Lee Unkrich again can we talk to Holden yes <laughs> is Holden here? no Lee Unkrich is only here now Holden has disappeared inside of me <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to animate Toy Story 4. Hi, Lee. I'm a big fan of your work. <laughs> uh, no, thank you. I don't like fans. Oh, God. <laughs> so it was kind of a stalemate. Disney ended up, I'm Lee Unkrich again, Disney ended up using the idea of Toy Story 3 as kind of a bargaining chip, and unfortunately, they started making their own version against our wishes. Pixar hasn't really had many dark times in its history, but that was probably the darkest time when their version of Toy Story 3 was being made, because these were our characters. These were our children, and they had been kind of taken away from us. No one was happy about it. So, I mean, just just very very upsetting, and I couldn't imagine. I mean, you've got these two great movies, You, you so much pain went into these two movies too so much stress so much work and then to see disney just kind of you know grab them and then make this yeah this this tale that seems a little off definitely just feels a little off from the heart of what toy story is all about but luckily uh above michael eisner was a man named bob Iger. i don't know if i talked about this during uh the last episode but uh he describes this uh, kind of lightning bolt moment where he was overseeing, you know, he visited the uh, uh, the unveiling, the opening of a Hong Kong Disney World Park. And uh, during the big parade, he noticed that like none of the none of Disney's like 
newer properties were actually like on the parade and that like the crowd wasn't getting a pop from like Brother Bear or uh, Treasure Planet. But when the Pixar characters would show up, all of a sudden all the kids were freaking out and loving it. And uh, he actually becomes president in 2006. And it was actually his very first order of business to buy Pixar and essentially put all of the Pixar chiefs, Edwin Catmull and John Lasseter, in charge of all Disney animation. This was a huge deal. Essentially, they realized Pixar's doing it better than we are at this point. Instead of like trying to can't beat them, buy them. Instead of trying to fuck them over, why don't we like use them to make <laughs> oodles and oodles of money? <laughs> like, and the same acquisition um, mindset is what led them to pick up Marvel and then Lucasfilm, and yep. has resulted in Disney becoming the fucking from cultural juggernaut to like. Actual, actual, giant, unstoppable obelisk of giant, culture. like Hollywood monopoly. So, uh, also shortly there thereafter, Circle Seven Animation is shut down, and its Toy Story Three was canceled. I will say this though: I mean, my heart does go out oh. to that workers of that studio who all got fucked over. And- well, no, it's actually uh, uh, Circle Seven, or as they were more uh, famously referred to, Pix Aren't. <laughs> uh, actually got absorbed into Disney's uh, main animation studios and a lot of that team ended up working on stuff like Tangled and Frozen and Wreck-It Ralph so oh, it wasn't all it wasn't okay, all lost. good I did not know that that yeah. is fantastic so uh We've got John Laster, Andrew Stanton, Pete Doctor, and Lee Unkrich uh, visiting the house where they first pitched Toy oh, Story. I, I looked this up. It is it is a a rentable cabin. You can actually pick it up for four hundred fifty dollars a night wow. in Marin County, called the Poets Loft. Dude, wow, that's a, that would actually be great to mm-hmm. go there and just like just try to get some of that juju. Try to like write a script for for a couple days or something. Uh, on the first day, they uh, all sit down with their perspective ideas for what a Toy Story sequel could be. And at the end of the first day, they realize none of them are, none of the ideas are that good. And in desperation to kind of rekindle their uh, creative energy, they decide to rewatch Toy Story 1 and 2 together. Uh, the Poet's Loft does not have a television, so they all sat on the floor and just watched them on someone's laptop. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, Lee Unkrich actually is the one who takes the role as the director. Uh, he previously edited the first two films. Um, that was the man who I was earlier. He okay. uh, previously edited the first two films and co-directed the second. Stanton writes the initial treatment, and Michael Arndt the screenplay. And Mike, okay, so uh, let's can uh, let, let me get into Lee Unkrich because yeah, he's a fascinating guy. He is a very fascinating guy, uh, and, and just the inception of because I, I don't have a lot here about how they really kind of put together this story in that cabin. So um, Lee Unkrich has had been with Pixar from the beginning and what kind of what, you know, this was Pixar was this kind of uh, killer's row of uh, of technical pioneers as well as animation pioneers. And Lee was um, one of the first like true experts in nonlinear film editing stuff. You know what we basically take for granted and everything you see on uh, Premiere Pro iMovie, the idea that you have kind of. The, the preview window, the timeline, the audio, uh, the audio visualizer. And instead of like going through footage bit by bit and cutting out pieces of film and taping them together, or as they did on video, like having to like scrub and dub individual pieces of video, um, this was digital film editing. And uh, Unkrich, just by like pure, uh, you know, luck of kind of like how we we've talked about this a lot, like 
He just happened to be in school at the exact moment where they picked up all these Avid editing machines. Avid is still the company responsible for like all the pro-level editing uh, hardware and software that you will find in major movies and TV, uh, and TV shows. At the University of Southern California, um, he got to play with these machines. He got to like learn editing on these machines in an era where it wasn't fully uh, integrated into filmmaking yet. Um, he starts working on television on such shows as Renegade and Prison Stories, Women on the Inside. He actually uh, uh, famously uh, worked on the entire run of Silk Stockings on the USA ah, Network. I remember fucking sexy crimes. I remember beating it to that show. Ah, <laughs> oh, so good. I remember being a kid and seeing the because like USA had a lot of like uh, kids programming and teen programming, and I would see like the Silk Stockings ads, and I'd be like. This is trying to evoke some kind of feeling out of me, but as a child, I am incapable of feeling it yet. <laughs> and then it turned out later, it's like, oh, it was boners. <laughs> They're going for boners. Oh, why didn't they just call it boners or so, boner giver? So for this <laughs> first completely digital film, they needed someone who could work with digital editing. And so while they were surrounded by like tech nerds and animation nerds, Leon Critch was this one guy that actually knew how to edit live film. Um, and that perspective kind of gave him uh, way more uh, uh, insight into filmmaking and kind of gave a director. Uh, he basically went from editor to co-director almost instantly because for movies that are pre basically made entirely in storyboard form first, we've, have we gone into this? Because the animation in Pixar is so labor intensive and then so computing intensive, they basically make the movie from scratch and kind of crude animatics first with like, you know, first they use scrap audio using like the animators and Pixar staff. Then they get the voice actors and basically they have the entire movie made in this crude format before they ever start like modeling and animating through there. Right. Because it um, it's so laborious, as we just saw with Toy Story 2, to have to go back and, and you know, redo that work. It's so difficult. And because uh, in theory... Uh, CGI animation is about like placing digital actors on a digital stage stuff like coverage and scene transitions is all like completely new and Unkrich had so had like basically the only know-how to kind of put together coherent movies uh, with that I, I hope I'm communicating this yes story. so here's this live action you know he worked on TV <laughs> um, he worked on silk stockings <laughs> and now he's like helping this team like take the imagery and the uh and and the performances that they've like made digitally and actually cutting it together into an actual movie mm. um and that like level of expertise and that like deep understanding of the pipeline quickly made him uh indispensable for Pixar so in February 2008, the film's plot line was reported. Woody the cowboy and his toy box friends are dumped in a daycare center after their owner, Andy, leaves for college. Unkrich writes about this inception of this idea. Frankly, we wanted to see how Woody and the others would deal with that inevitable day of Andy outgrowing them. Which that is so fucking... Let's, get, let's talk about how amazing that is. Yeah. Is every single kids movie, Disney movie, fairy tale, video game... Always just be like, and then they lived happily ever after. Or like, and then like, even Toy Story 2 is like, we'll just enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. And then to actually like say like, no, let's see what happens when the day finally fucking comes. And like watching these characters having to deal with basically toy Ragnarok is fucking amazing idea. 
Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And um, their biggest challenge with Toy Story 3, uh, he said, of that was the biggest one had to do with humans. We had done humans in The Incredibles, Ratatouille, and Up, but in each case, they were very stylized, a kind of cartoony. We hadn't done realistic, more believable humans, and I knew they needed to be fantastic in Toy Story 3. They had to essentially try to... uh, Essentially, they're trying to go for the heart on every level here, trying to make it as real as humanly possible. I love what A.O. Scott from The New York Times says of uh, of Toy Story 3. He says, This film, this whole three-part, 15-year epic about the adventures of a bunch of silly plastic junk... Turns out also to be a long, melancholy meditation on loss, impermanence, and that noble, stubborn, foolish thing called love. It is like a fucking cartoon about toys. It is the most emotional thing ever. You know, like, or I mean, not ever, but it's just such an emotional journey that they take you on. And you're just like, these are fucking toys. Why am I crying? You know what I mean? Because it's real. Yeah. Because it's all, it's all like, it, there's the, the toy level of them dealing with change and death in a way. And then there's the, um, the human level where it's about Andy and his, and like moving on. Um, the, uh, incinerator scene, the famous incinerator scene that we all know where they all hold hands and of close course. their eyes. That's the reason for the season here, people, yeah. right? Everybody knows that. If you haven't seen it, watch Toy Story 3 for this exact scene. Um, it is this emotion, like they all essentially accept their own death, mm-hmm. their own fate. It is like, and it's done so well. It's, you know, it's it's so believably done, which the, is insane. Like, the way Jesse just like grabs Bullseye's hoof, who very much like a scared dog is just like, just freaking out. They all just, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It is genuinely a beautiful scene. Um, that was in so early. That was so essential that they actually cut Bo Peep from the movie mm. because they just could not figure out a way for a, porcelain doll to survive that whole like chaotic experience ah. um which is actually ironic because now like the hunt for bo peep is apparently going to be apparently the plot. Toy story four, which we'll get into in just a little bit i have a bunch of stuff on toy story um, four the movie uh breaks more records it's um it's i i honestly i think it's one of my favorite pixar movies uh for sure it's definitely up there for a lot of people as one of the best pixar films it's definitely in my top five a lot of critics say it's overhyped um now there's like a pushback for anything that gets universal praise there's always got to be one guy in the corner be like i didn't think it was that great (laughs) it does repeat. no jake i haven't experienced that at all lately (laughs) what are you talking about uh it does repeat a lot of the uh notes from toy story 2 but i feel like the level of filmmaking um they basically had to remake the enti- not basically they had to remake the entire cast because by this point the original models were no longer uh, yes. compatible with the new uh, versions of the software they were using. Yes, exactly. So everything from the lighting to the shaders to even just and they finally were able to create like even Al in Toy Story Two is like really janky looking when you look at him now. Also, that the junkyard scene uh, near the end of the film that's super complex. Uh, they spent more than a year and a half uh, researching and developing the simulation systems just that are required for that. There was a lot of animation happening in that film that was new turf for them and really busted them into uh, new territory that gave us movies like Coco and things later on. Because you think about some of those, uh, the complexity of some of the stuff in Coco, it's mm-hmm. incredible. That that really did come from the uh, creating the simulation systems that. Uh, were put into place. I mean, for you Toy think Story about 3. like how uh, Sully and Monsters Inc. was such a technical achievement because they kind of got fur going. But then you look at Lotso Bear and like it's like actual like terry cloth. It's like tufts and like it gets dirty and wet and it's like it's very believable. Uh, 
I still think it's fucked up that like they talk about how it's a big deal that the monkey at the security cameras that, you know, uh, will clang whenever he sees something going wrong. Uh, doesn't freak out when Buzz first escapes and sees everyone in the snack machine. Like, where the <laughs> fuck was that monkey if this is the all-seeing monkey? Uh, I hope someone got fired for that boner. <laughs> but the emotional core of it is just, like, it, ju- it just resonates. You've grown up with these characters and... Some stuff about the casting. Tom Hanks, Tim Allen, and John Ratzenberger were actually sat down and shown a story reel of the film, mm-hmm. a full story reel, instead of handing them a script. Um, and they immediately signed as soon as they finished the viewing. Uh, this this re- this film was uh, essentially just a bunch of moving storyboards and pre-recorded voices, sound effects, and music. Uh, Jim Varney, who played mm-hmm. the slinky dog, he passed away on February 10, 2000, and he was actually replaced by Blake Clark, who... Don't smoke kids who coincidentally was good friends with jim varney since 1989 when they both appeared in the movie fast food together and they didn't even know that they replaced him with like a good dear friend of his that's very sweet um you have all these incredible names in this movie that were added on as well as our original cast you've got ned Beatty, michael keaton whoopi goldberg michael Timothy keaton's Dalton. amazing as Ken. michael keaton's amazing Kristen shaw's fantastic bonnie hunt Jeff Garland, all joining the cast, um, and this was uh, this was definitely Rickles's la- uh, John, uh, uh, Don Rickles' last film uh, t- as he yes. passed away in April of 2017. Technically, he voiced Mr. Potato Head one more time in the direct to like TV Toy Story that time forgot special, but yeah, that was. Are you trying to fuck my shit up right now, Jake? I'm just. It's just like literally the last factoid I researched <laughs> in a because I. We, I, do you? Rem- I didn't realize that there was this, uh, this other Whole Toy fort. Story thing that had come out like after it, and I just was like, oh, oh. fuck, this is the thing. No shit, I didn't even, I didn't yeah. even look into that. So the music again, composed and conducted by Randy Newman, and it's of course fantastic as his previous work on these movies. It premiered on June thirteenth, twenty ten, at the El Capitan Theater in Hollywood, and went into wi- wide release on June eighteenth. They also released uh, released it with the Pixar short Day and Night. I love that. The, do they still do that? I don't know if I've yeah, seen a Pixar movie in the theater in a while. I usually watch them at home because I know I'm going to cry a lot. Yeah. So no, they still do the. Shorts. They still do the shorts. I love that they do the shorts before. It's always such. It makes it such an event. Like uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. They had the baby short in the beginning, oh and it was so good. Like like having that. Sh- it just makes it so much more of a theatrical event. You feel like you're going to see like a real, you know, a, a full kind of evening entertainment when they put a short in, in the beginning it, it legitimizes it in some way it makes a boodles toodles doodles amount of money 415 million dollars in North America 652 million in other countries for a world, worldwide total of 1.67 billion dollars earning more revenue than the previous two films of the series combined it was the highest grossing film at the time it Jake it beat Shrek 2 it beat Shrek 2 for highest gross wow it was the big top dog until Frozen came out. It's a little-known film called Frozen came out. Let it go, Shrek Jake. Forever also did bizarrely well, and yeah, I don't remember. Of course. Why. Everyone loves Shrek. Somebody. Nope. Everybody loves Shrek, Jake. Uh, the movie's a huge hit. It's 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 emotionally. Wins Best Animated Feature. Uh, I think it was one of the I, – I don't know if it was the first, but it was a big deal that it was actually nominated, nominated for, for Best Picture. Uh, it had a very uh, – if you look at, at the Academy Awards, we should yeah, yeah. say <laughs> um, it had a very fun uh, for your consideration campaign that like really elevates the movie because just each, you know, it's it's a classic trope. But like every frame of that movie is a painting. 
Yeah, um, it's beautiful. It's 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 beautiful, and it, it is has so much heart in it, and it really I think does mark a sea change for Pixar in terms of storytelling. Like they they you thought they had mastered it initially, and this is like a new way for them. I feel like uh, it's like oh, we can really make these man babies just. Weep a weep a weep a weep all the way home, and then one guy in the corner is like, "I call it the good dinosaur." It's like <laughs> he's a dinosaur, and nothing visually interesting is about it. And then, no, everyone just ignores that it exists. That's my idea for the movie. It's a dinosaur movie that nobody acknowledges. So this is also known as uh, this is again, you know, where Toy Story Two was in in that list of movies of arguments for maybe a sequel being better than its original. I mean, not only is sequel better than its original, but fucking nailing the trilogy. That's curse. the thing. So now, uh, Toy Story trilogy is now up there as one of the greatest trilogies of all time. You could definitely sit in a room full of people, and that could be your trilogy to argue mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Along with what Star Wars, um, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings. Die Hard. Die Hard for, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. Oh, man. We um, should do it. We should do an episode Not the Godfather. Whoopsie doodle. We might need to do an episode on Die Hard at some point. Um, oh, neat. But, yeah, it, it is It is up there. That is why I'm a little squeamish about this Toy Story 4. But it is been has been said that this is a total departure from the original trilogy. It would be... It would definitely not pick up where three left off. It would be its own thing, a, a, a standalone side thing. In 2010, uh, there was an interview with Lee Unkrich, and he said, well, we don't have any plans for Toy Story 4. I'm flattered that people ask about it. It reminds me how much people love the characters, but it was really important to me with this film that we not just create another sequel, that it not just be another appendage coming off of the other two. Um, Hanks, uh, Tom Hanks was already signed on to a fourth film just in case it ever happened. I think these kinds of deals are pretty rampant in Hollywood these days. Like, hey, it, j- just we're, we're making so much money, so let's just get you signed up just in case. It well, should be noted that in video games and various toy tie-ins, it's actually his brother Jim Hanks doing the voice of Woody. Uh, yeah. And it was officially announced by Disney during an investor's call on November 6, 2014, that there would be a Toy Story 4. John Laster and Andrew Stanton wrote a film treatment based on a discussion among themselves uh, along with Peter Doctor and Lee Unkridge. Uh, Lasseter stated that Toy Story 4 will be a love story and it's all about, as you mentioned before, Bo Peep and Woody. It would focus on their romance and the journey Woody and Buzz go on to find her. Um, uh, John Cooley, head of story on Inside Out, is set to be co-director um, and uh, of the of 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 well, all of- in light of recent events, it's actually Josh Cooley is the solo director. Now he's the solo director, yes, because uh, they stepped down. John Laster, who we kind of explained why John Laster is a bit of an issue these days. We explained mm-hmm. that in Toy Story once. So we're probably not going to uh, talk about it too much in Toy Story two and three episode, but. Just know he was kind of a, a shit heel, and and we have stuff about that in the first episode of of this whole thing. He says Toy Story three ended Woody and Buzz's story with Andy so perfectly that for a long time we never even talked about doing another Toy Story movie. But when Andrew, Pete, Lee, and I came up with this new idea, I just could not stop thinking about it. It was so exciting to me. I knew we had to make this movie, and I wanted to direct it myself. We do uh, we do not do any sequel because we want to print money, which I think is a good. Way you to say that, by. and then Cars Two came out, <laughs> and then yeah, that's the thing. We all we all we all gloss over Cars, don't we? Yeah, we all gloss over Cars. But Cars was always that franchise to be like some movies we do need to p- kind of maybe just make just for kids and just to be goofy. And- Cars is just, I mean, you know, I don't know if they thought. 
Because Cars 2 was a marketing, like, uh, I keep using the word juggernaut, uh, shibboleth. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah, for every mistake or misstep that Pixar comes on with. Because it's not like people are buying, like, fucking sad, sadness, the depressive blue girl, like, dolls from inside out. So, you know, Cars keeps the lights on. I'm not going to, like, begrudge him for exactly. that. Exactly. Although and there was that weird lemon party joke. Ha! Huh? <laughs> no, I've never seen Cars. In, in Cars 2, there's, like, a conspiracy for lemons, like, you know, bad cars. And so then there's, like, there's a scene where all the cars that are lemons are having a party, and there's lemons all over the, That's the banquet hall. That's insane. And all you can think of is, oh, this is fucking old men sucking each other yeah, off. It's right? a lemon party. It's a lemon party. <laughs> That's fucking weird. Anyways, uh, one crazy thing to me is that Pixar um, and and Di- I know my parents listen to this uh, show, so just to explain, there is a famous uh, internet <laughs> gross-out site called LemonParty.org where you would trick your friends into going to it to because it there. sounds like innocuous enough, and then when you clicked on it, it it's was old graphic imagery of old men each having, dicks. having having a sexual uh, uh, cavalcade, a threesome of old men. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you go, oh, and you close it up, and then you like, and then you, it's fun though. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Stan had actually created a polished treatment before Pixar or Disney heads even knew it existed. So that's kind of nuts, I thought. Um, and in July of 2017, Laster steps down as director because of all the things we talked about, right? It's all because of that mm-hmm. stuff, right? Uh, leaving uh, Cooley as the film's sole director. Originally, Rashida Jones. And her writing partner, Will McCormack, were the writers, but they ended up stepping down from the project in 2017 as well and were replaced by Stephanie Folsom, who scrapped 75% of the original script. Uh, Randy Newman has signed on to score the film, and that's about all we know at this point. I, I'm, You know, I'm down. I also don't think it needs to exist. I kind of wish they had moved on. Whatever, though. I also didn't think Toy Story 3 needed to exist before it existed, and now I am found myself to be incredibly wrong. So, you know, there's always that. Uh, that that's it. I mean, that's pretty much where we have it. So there's more Toy Story to come. Apparently, um, the, I think that the story of Toy Story inherently tells the story of Pixar. How difficult it was to make these movies. How much they've matured since the first movie that was already a phenomenal film. Uh, how much the animation has matured. Where we're at today with CGI versus where we came from. It was amazing to to. I was reading that where. I don't know what I was. This was in like a Reddit forum or something like that. But it was like uh, they were talking about. I think just like one kid was talking about how he came home from the movies and his grandmother asked him what he saw uh, when he saw the first Toy Story movie and he he found it hard to like describe what it was because it was just so groundbreaking and Mm -hmm. so new that it's just incredible that we've lived during this age of innovation with CGI and that these movies literally did not exist uh until our lifetime mm-hmm. you know and and it, it's pretty unbelievable and then to see them go from toy story to coco is incredible you know just animation wise storytelling wise everything and uh you know pixar's a phenomenal fascinating company uh that i'm so happy to have grown up with and so happy that i get to continue to experience pixar films uh into old age hopefully it's also kind of this is something that i'm i'm not the first one to make this connection but the idea that uh the toy story franchise is obsessed with like displacement and obsolescence the same way that pixar themselves basically killed 2d animation yeah it's um, fascinating which is uh you know they took what they what they needed from it which is you know storytelling and emotional acting and and, and beats and 
uh, motion and all, you know, uh, you know, they took like the, the the necessary lessons of it, but the art form of like lush, you know, one one to one, twenty four frames per second, two D animation is basically a dead art form at yeah, this I point. Yeah, I mean, uh, d- even with you know Frozen, you yeah, know? like even Fro- now now Disney's princess movies are CG. It's it's pretty wild. It's yeah, it's just it's every it feels you know it's a it's a little story about little things that encapsulates the entirety of modern existence and it's 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 crazy the fact that they're like jaunty fun movies doesn't hurt yeah well, there you go. That's our uh, two-parter on Toy Story. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to support us further, check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. For you- only $5 a month, you get to get a podcast <laughs> bonus. You can bet it's going to be fun. Get out of here, Randy. You I owe- fucking know where you live. You owe me money, Randy. <laughs> you, I got a friend in this gun. You owe me money, Randy. I'm turning it to Bob Dylan. <laughs> I know. You are very quickly turning to Bob Dylan. Uh, uh, it is, uh, yeah, once again, that's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. You can follow me on twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho. I'm streaming all the time, baby. Jake. You can follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young, and uh, also check out the Drawfee channel on YouTube, the Dorkly channel on YouTube, and uh, keep stay tuned. There's some really exciting things happening that I really wish I could tell you about, but I legally can't. All right, take care, everybody. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to sixty percent on brands you love: Rag and Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.